Hi, this is Nicole DeBoer, also known as Esri Dax from Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents... Neil Before Pod. Hello, and welcome to another explorative edition of Neil Before Pod. I'm your host, Craig McKenzie, and I'm here to take you on another trip beyond the final frontier as we discuss Star Trek Discovery up to the mid-season break. To do this, I'll need some help, so time to beam in my bridge crew. On my transporter pad here is Nick. Welcome back, Nick. Good evening. And Chris, I can't tell you that he's not a Klingon spy, but who knows? Hello, Chris. I am totally not a Klingon spy. Honestly, I am not a sleeper agent whatsoever. Kill all humans. <laughs> there we go. That's, uh, that's something to think on. So, Star Trek Discovery recently wrapped up for a winter high. It's quite a short one, actually. It's, not, it's back pretty early in January, so that's pretty cool. Woo! Yeah, so Yay. this is you know this is the first Star Trek show we've had in a while, and some of us had a chat about the the first two episodes, um, which are nothing like the other seven, really. So we'll start with kind of spoiler-free thoughts on the show, you know, as a whole. Nick, you didn't talk about the first couple of episodes; you weren't on that episode, obviously. So um, if you want to give a quick rundown on what you thought the kind of prologue, and then what you thought of. Um, well, I, 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 I can cast my mind back through the mists of prehistory from about two months ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I liked it. You know, I mean, a lot of people had a lot of criticisms. Where, oh, it doesn't look kind of, it's not in the same... You know, I've watched the same trails and I thought, you know, I like the look of this. I like the casting. Yeah, I'm going to give it a chance. And yeah, I actually enjoyed the first two episodes. Um, I was disappointed to see a certain character take her bow but you know i would like to see more of her character okay michelle yo she was great um spoilers spoilers sorry um we don't see what happens to her i know (laughs) but um you know come on people have seen it by now if they don't see it they're not gonna watch it um (laughs) I, i i thought it was really good i thought it looked great it looked like a movie it felt like a movie i thought the change in tone was really interesting um the last scene of the second part of that opener, I wasn't really that keen with the way they shot it. I was like, this is trying to make Starfleet look darker and more evil than they actually are. I think, guess you know the scene I probably mean. Um, it was very much a kind of S.H.I.E.L.D.-type, spirey yeah, squad-type scene, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I didn't really like that. And I thought what they did to this character was overly harsh. I think we've seen... One, I'm not sure I put all the blame on this character for what they that they put on her for a start, which I guess gets mentioned later on anyway. But also, we've seen other characters in the Star Trek universe do things far worse and get off more lightly. Uh, so I, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I liked it, and I, I, I liked where it went after the first two episodes. Um, I like that. I like the arcs of the characters. I've really, really, really gotten to like the characters. I've seen some people criticising Burnham on Twitter saying, you know, she 
she's terrible. She should, uh, saying she should be shot in the head and nonsense like that. And I, I've I've really really grown to like her. I think she's a great character, and Some I'm enjoying don't following her. Nice things. And um, on top of that, I absolutely love Stamets and Culber. They are great. Yeah, and we'll definitely come on to them when we can. Yeah, and Tilly. Yeah. Tilly's awesome. I mean, I, Jason Isaacs is great as the cat. I, I, I just like all the characters. They're great. They, they've drawn me in. They're a Trek crew. It's Star Trek. I don't, you know, other people may disagree. I've really enjoyed it. It's not perfect. What show is? But yeah, yeah. I, I like it. Yeah, um, Chris, what are your thoughts on the the remaining seven that we didn't talk about? <laughs> the remaining seven. Um, I think it had a really good start. Um, people remember my views from the the previous podcast. Um, and I think it kind of continued on form. It's very different. And once you get over the fact that, okay, it doesn't look quite how this used to look and uh, get over a few different bits and pieces, I think it's, it's great. I, I really enjoy it. It's just good to see Trek back on telly again. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm of the same thought. Uh, I love... I love this show. I think it's really, really well put together. You know, it's it's slick, it's stylish. Uh, the acting is good. The characters are well written. It just it is Trek for the modern age, and mm-hmm. in in every sense of what you might consider that. You know, and the J.J. Abrams movie was very much a you know a high budget update of the original series, and and this is kind of moving things in a slightly different direction and the tone is different to the Abrams movies but, you know, visually it's it's not what we would expect from classic Star Trek and that's a good thing because franchises that don't move on just stagnate and disappear and that's ultimately what happened to it in the first place. So yeah, Spot on. Totally agree with you with that because it's, it's sort of acting as a gateway the same way as the Abrams movies have acted as a gateway for new people to come in and go, oh, actually, I quite like this. This is now the TV equivalent that's sort of leading people in and going, come on, you might like this. And if you like this, you might actually like some of the stuff that maybe doesn't look the same, but carries some of the same themes. And you come, you know, all are welcome here, you know. And and the more that people accept that, because making it popular again allows it to continue. If you let it sort of, like you say, quietly die out, then there's going to be no Trek on telly and everyone's going to be sitting there going, oh, why is no, it no. no, no, no. It should just look like it was made in 1960 with a bunch of... <laughs> cater, to, cater to people who really just want it to look like a fan film. <laughs> and I say that as someone who loves fan films, but, you know. And that's probably, what, 2% of your viewing audience, realistically. Yeah, because they're all sitting there at home watching on cathode ray tube tellies and uh, watching them all on uh, VHS rather than buying the DVD because they are they are true true fans, of course. I think it's difficult because you get into these groups and you do these groups of fans, and I'm not putting them down in the slightest because you know we all like what we like and we dislike what we like, and you know you can't judge people for that. Um, and there's you know there's no accounting for taste and preference and that kind of thing, but. I think the problem we get into is you get groups of people, and this applies to all elements of fandom, and us included, you get into your own little echo chamber and you think that just because you and your friends think exactly the same, everybody else must agree with you, or everybody else should think the same, or does think the same, or anybody that doesn't think that must be wrong. So you get into this whole echo chamber thing, and I think people get a very skewed perception of what others think. 
I mean, it's just like people say the J.J. Abrams movies are trash, and it's like, well, for the general part, the people that go and watch the movies would tend not to agree with you. Yeah. You know? But because all your your 20 friends that you chat about Star Trek with agree with you, you think everybody thinks that way. I don't know. Who has 20 friends that they chat to Star Trek chat about Star Trek with okay oh. five <laughs> that's more like it that's a generous estimate no I mean yeah, I have uh, more than that <laughs> yeah there are more of us than you think you know that's that's a, that's what we have learned in recent years we're uh, everywhere <laughs> what's the line from Fight Club you know we uh, you know we make your coffees we take out your trash etc you know I don't mean to turn Star Trek fandom into like a Fight Club style uh, that could work. Anti-society thing, but it could happen. Futurama decided it was going to be a religion eventually, so, you know. <laughs> you mean it isn't already? already? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I don't... Uh, you know, I'm not making fun of any parts of fandom. I think if you if, if you watch this and you can't get behind all the changes they've made, then that's that's entirely valid because you can't get behind it. Although, I do question why people continue to watch something that they don't like. That's that's another problem. I, I, I guess there's an element of people don't want to give up on it, and they want their hope that they'll see something they like. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, yeah. It's difficult to walk away from something you care about. Yeah, true. Mm. Although the ratings for Enterprise would suggest otherwise. Well, yeah, it's funny. A lot of the people that are, you know, were trashing Enterprise at the time are the ones holding up as, you know, the standard of Star Trek these days. And the people the that were real like, Star Trek show. The people, people that were yeah. trashing Rick Berman and Brandon Braga <laughs> are now holding them up as the keepers of the faith. So, you know, yeah, the, you only need to look at the number of people who are going on about how Orville, the Orville is real Star Trek. Yeah. And it's Brandon Braga, and you're like, but you, this is the guy that you were blaming for Trek being, you know, terrible <laughs> ten years ago. Um, but, you know, perspective's a funny thing. Yeah, it's a funny old world. It is indeed. And we yeah. wouldn't be here if it wasn't. <laughs> That's true. So, we've come... We've done a little bit of spoiler-free chat. Um, there's not much we can say without spoiling it, so... Uh, if there are no objections, I could set us to spoiler alert and we could just dive right in. Go for it. Chris, are you happy with that? Oh, yeah, go for it. But as long as it's got a very cool sounding klaxon course black alert yeah black alert yeah black alert black alert okay now we can talk about whatever we want we have spoiler jumped to or wherever the spoilers can happen um so start with the core forest into the forest yeah (laughs) (laughs) so we'll start with the core of every star trek show since this the franchise began the characters, and this show is unique in the sense that it has a main character, whereas other shows were more of an ensemble. Even the original series, it was a, a, an ensemble of three, but still an ensemble. Um, Michael Burnham is our lead, the woman with a, a male name, which is a staple of Brian Fuller, I believe. Um, and we've already talked about a little bit about her the choice she made in the first two episodes to mutiny against the captain because she thought she was right about what she needed to do and she loses her freedom and her rank as a result and then gets kind of corralled into service on the Discovery because Lorca doesn't want to waste the potential she has. I think the irony is it's kind of implied that she probably was right. 
Yeah. Although I guess that's up for debate, but, you know. Well, I mean, the the way I saw it was the war was happening, whatever was going to happen. You know, the she didn't start the battle. She didn't even get to fire off the shot that she wanted. So um, all she really did was discover the, the, the beacon. That was it. Well, I so, guess the biggest thing she did was um, killing Takuvmash. Yeah, but that was after the fighting had started. True, but she could have stunned him. So I guess, I don't know, you could argue that that was the biggest mistake of the thing. Yeah, I suppose. It could be argued that anything was going to happen anyway. I mean, we learn a bit about, um, what was his name? Was it Voke? No, Voke was the... Voke. Yeah. No, Call. sorry. Call was, uh, he's a bit of an extremist in his own right. He's the... Um, Yeah, it's quite a complicated situation because everyone blames Michael for what happened except the fact it was, as with everything, it's more down to the actions of a group of people than it is the actions of just one person. Absolutely. It's It's certainly not a clear-cut thing. Yeah. Although it's easy to blame someone, I suppose. You know, it's this person's fault that you're stuck in a war that you didn't want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's easy to place blame. Uh, But she wears it well, I think. You know, I like that she's... Um, eager to do the time for for the crime, um, she doesn't apologise for what she did, but she also doesn't sugarcoat it either. She still feels like she made the right decision at that point, even though she regrets that it led to the death of her captain and friend, of course. Mm-hmm. But but still, at, at no point does she say, "I did, I shouldn't have done that." Well, she did what she thought was right, and she stands by it. Yeah, and she should uh, to an extent. I mean. I don't know. It's pretty weird that a Vulcan hello is just, you know, essentially punching someone in the face. Oh, that's quite funny. Yeah, <laughs> that's, more, that's more of a Glasgow hello than a Vulcan <laughs> hello, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there might be some benefit to that. Maybe that explains why so many Glaswegians like Klingons. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> wonder if the Klingons are based on Glaswegians. Make as much sense on occasion. Uh, <laughs> but... it, it would explain a great deal. <laughs> if you've ever met, ever met a Glaswegian Klingon uh, not yet although oh there's a few out there <laughs> I imagine so it'll be quite interesting uh, so yeah Michael she develops throughout the, the show um, at first she's very reluctant to make friends and I like the way she like Tilly bounces off her you know Tilly is very much her opposite because she's very in your face and keeps talking and so on where Michael's very subdued and very sedate and the the two have a really good back and forth really good dynamic Tilly is my uh, as much as I enjoy seeing her on screen and I think she's very fun on screen I think if I was put in a room with her I would break down eventually um, but yeah I, I think the the sort of happy foil to to Michael's sort of gloomy outlook and you know you can tell you know in the first sort of few scenes that they get together it's like I am my shell is not going to break my shell is not going to break my shell is not going to break and then by the end of it you know you've got her helping her train and sort of bouncing off quite well you know I feel like um, Tilly is what Harry Kim could have been in Voyager this kind of fresh out of the the academy young naive although she's still in the academy weirdly but uh, but young and naive and optimistic and kind of annoying as a result, I think. Well, he kind of was. He just was like that for seven years. Yeah, and pretty blandly written 
unfortunately, so it didn't really come across as well as it could have. He had his moments. He, he yeah. just didn't let him grow as a character. Whereas yeah. I feel like Tilly's grown quite a lot, even in these nine episodes. Yeah, she's she has already grown. Um, mm-hmm. The the way that she's under, starting to understand what it actually takes to be a captain, and um, even when she's first introduced, she's really socially awkward, and then you have that party scene and uh, the time loop episode, she's very outgoing. Mm-hmm. And you know, very socially aware at that point. At least, so at least she's dialed into how social situations work on Discovery, if not everywhere else. I think there's been a fair degree of growth of all the characters. I mean, Burnham, maybe the one that's grown the least is Loka. To be fair, but um, we've learned a lot about Loka, even though we've not learned that much about Loka. Yeah, he's very scheming and manipulative. And yeah, it'd be interesting to see where he's going with that yeah or if he's just going to remain like that you have this whole thing about him he loses his entire ship in the early Mm. days of the war and then uh, he lies on all his psych evaluations just so he can get back out into space and and he's clearly good enough to convince in theory top Starfleet counsellors although we all know what the standard of Starfleet counselling is like from the next generation I feel great pain (laughs) yeah so, um, but he's able to do that, and he's able to convince people of to do what, pretty much anything he wants them to do, mm-hmm. which is kind of sinister, especially in the last episode where um, where he manipulates Stamets into proceeding with the dangerous jumps because he appeals to him as a scientist, and then and then at the end it's like uh, we'll just travel at warp, we'll be fine, you know, it'll be fine. He's like, no, no, mm-hmm. I want to make sure the crew gets back safe, and it's like it's almost like. The way he does it, it makes people think that they come come up with the idea themselves. Yeah, and he does that on several occasions throughout as well. Great captain, uh, I like him a lot. I think uh, Jason Isaacs absolutely nails the part. Oh, he's great. And uh, I've seen him interviewed a couple of times. He seems pretty full of beans as well. He's pretty optimistic and excited about what he's a part of. So that's really cool. Yeah, I, I've been following him on Twitter quite a lot, and he's really quite engaged with fans as well. Including and, when he's roasting them. Yeah, he seems to spend an awful lot of time roasting Trump voters, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> I mean, I'm just looking forward to discovering more about the character as we go along, you know, little bits of the backstory. Because, like you say, we've only been getting little nuggets, but as you have, they've always been quite interesting, you know, so... I want to know what his story is. What is he doing? Yeah, although there's a, there's a prequel novel coming out quite soon, I think, that, <clears> that has Lorca as a major character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't yeah. make me do homework to watch this show. I don't have the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, me neither. I barely have time to watch the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, anything that you have to do homework to, you know, appreciate is not something worth watching. Well, I think these things are. I think these things are like nice bonuses. So yeah. you know, Th- that's what they should be. Pick up yeah. some Easter eggs, but they're not necess- necessary. No, definitely not. And then. Um, one thing I like about the way the characters are built is like they've, they've introduced characters that are important for more story reasons than anything else. Every other mm-hmm. Star Trek series has had, you know, you have the captain, you have the first officer, you've got the helmsman, you've got the, the tactical officer, etc. And like the bridge crew on Discovery aren't main characters. You know, the, the people you see sitting mm-hmm. about on the, the main bridge stations, they're, they're not the main characters. They are there throughout, but they're far from the focus which is which is nice yeah it's interesting because 
it gets away from that whole there's only seven people that can do anything mm-hmm. on this ship kind of idea, which has always frustrated me about Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It's just silly. Yeah. 400 people on this ship, but only seven of them can do anything. Well, I guess the limitations of a weekly show where you have to showcase your stars. Yeah. And they found a different way to do that. So they have, and it's nice. Yeah. It makes a, it makes a pleasant change, and like you say, it's it's another bit of just you know showing it to be a little bit different. I've got no doubt that you know you are seeing the same people on the bridge; they're just not not the the main focus. So you may find out a little bit about them down the line, but they're not the key cast. Yeah, we've heard their names. We have, yeah, and we know that Lorca thinks they're useless in combat. Well, that's changed though. Yeah, um, although it was pretty consistent up until the penultimate episode it's the mm-hmm. you know the start of the episode where they're fighting the Klingons and he's yelling at them to like fire at things and, and mm-hmm. be quicker and things like that and I do quite like that he's kind of tough love approach he's just he has no tolerance for incompetence whatsoever I think what we've seen over these last nine episodes is the crew actually grow into a crew yeah yeah because it's implied that the discovery hasn't been out there that long mm-hmm. um because in the third episode they mentioned this is brand new, it's just off the you know, production line or whatever and um, they're clearly near the beginning of their experiments mm-hmm. I mean, we almost inadvertently got a bit of that with Next Generation although that was largely down to the fact that the writing was so terrible in the first season um, <laughs> but yeah, we've never and I suppose DS9 we got a little bit of that as well, that was at least intentional yeah, everybody trying to gel together when they mm-hmm. weren't um, weren't in a situation that was ideal for any of them. Mm-hmm. And in Voyager was, in theory, two crews trying to merge together. Well, you know, after about episode three, they were all buddies, so... Yeah. The concept versus execution, as always. But, you know, I mean, the idea was there, so it wasn't as if they didn't think about it. Yeah. Um... And this one seems to take it to its kind of natural conclusion in terms of this. You see it all through Michael's perspective, especially I thought the third episode that introduced the Discovery was the most effective at doing that. You know, everything on the ship was a mystery. They kept pointing out all these things that didn't add up. And, and there's things know. we haven't seen yet, like those black badges. Yeah, that was the story with them. Yeah. We saw them once, we've never seen them again. Yeah. I wonder if that's something that they introduced and then decided that they hadn't got, didn't do anything with it and abandoned it. I don't know. Or is it something they're going to follow up on later? I mean, I, I, I tend to think you don't introduce stuff like that unless you plan to do something with it. Yeah. And I think that's a kind of, look at this and we'll revisit this later kind of moment. But I don't know. Yeah, it's just weird that they gave Michael essentially unfettered access to the ship and it hasn't come up again. Yeah. I don't know, we shall see. I, I, I think it's something we'll find out about in these next few episodes, but after Christmas. Yeah, could be. Um, there's, what, six left? Mm-hmm. I, I would hate to think they would set something like that up and not follow it up. I mean, you know, they made such a point of it. Definitely, yeah. It was, yeah, it was pointed out and it, there was a extreme close-up on the badge and mm-hmm. all this stuff, so, yeah. There's all sorts of things that 
that are going on there that we maybe don't know about. And I've seen producer interviews where they talk about, yeah, there's rooms inside the ship that no one knows what goes on in them and things. And that's not really been that's not really been focused on at all. I haven't really got the impression that the discovery is a is a place so much as it is a collection of sets mm-hmm. at this point. But that kind of works because they haven't gelled completely together as a crew yet. So yeah, yeah. So you are only seeing the areas that are pertinent to these particular people, and you don't really see much more than that. I mean, to be fair, if you look at most of the other shows, we didn't see that much of the ships. Even quite late in a lot of the shows. No, we've ticked off. We've ticked off quite a list already. You know, you've got the bridge, you've got the engine room, you've got we've had mm-hmm. a couple of like mess hall type scenes. You know, that's Ready that's room. your your bulk stock mm-hmm. and trade uh, the yeah, trek, really, isn't it? Ready room. Uh, Lorca's, Lorca's weird evil cave thing. <laughs> His man cave. <laughs> that has a Gorn skeleton and yeah. You know he's in the NRA, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I haven't spent a lot of time in that room actually. Well, who would want to spend time in that room? You, uh, you know, if, you, if you're in if you're in that room, you're in trouble. Yeah, I just want to see what other stuff is is going about. You know, what other stuff he's got. In good time, I suppose. I'm sure we will. Yeah. Um, I was immediately drawn to the Stamets character. You, you pointed out the, in the spoiler-free section, Nick, that him and Culver are really good. And I would agree. I mean, they're the first canon openly gay couple on Star Trek. And, well, it's treated as something that doesn't matter. Well, I mean, in, in the sense that it's just something that... They're, they're just two people in a relationship and that's it. I, I love the way it's presented. It's not an issue. And this is the way it should be done. I think people were worried for a long time that Star Trek would just do a bad job of portraying a same-sex couple. And I think those were justifiable worries. Um, but I think here they've just done a great job of doing it. Well, I like the way it's they confirmed natural. it. Because uh, the confirmation was just the two of them standing in front of a mirror brushing their teeth. Mm-hmm. And that was just such a understated way to reveal that they're a couple. I mean, you had them kind of almost flirting in earlier scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that could have just been anything, really. Uh, yeah. And then to see them just doing something completely mundane and ordinary. Yeah. I mean, it tells you they've been in a relationship for a while, they're comfortable with each other, and and they live together, I suppose, which is... Which is a great info dump, and it's just so casual as well. Mm-hmm. And then you see Stamets in a mirror when there's no reflection. Yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> but yeah, it just feels like a natural relationship, and the, the actors just seem to have this chemistry that works between them, so it's, it's great. It's really well done. They're yeah. probably one of my favourite things about the show. Yeah, and I like, um, I like Stamets and the way that his personality shifts because of what happens to him. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked the how crotchety he was to begin with. How he just clearly doesn't like Lorca that much early on. Yeah. yeah. The bit where Lorca says to him, uh, "We need you to get this this drive working," and he says, "I can't." And and he's like, "Well, you, you're going to get it working." And then he's like, "Well, I'll just leave. I don't want to be in this situation anyway." And he's like, "Cool. We're keeping all your stuff." Yeah, Lorca doesn't take any. It was a really good little um, interaction. Just uh, 
just how kind of aggressive they He's are towards each other. More in common with Jellicoe than any of the other captains we've seen, really. Yeah. And even then, he's more extreme than that, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I guess. And what he does to Cornwell is pretty extreme. Yeah, although I half expected the shuttle to blow up and him to be, like, responsible. Yeah, well, you know, he sent her off to a mission he was pretty sure was going to end badly, so... Yeah, and then didn't want not to, to go after her. her. Yeah, you know, if that had been anybody else, he would have gone after them. Yeah, but for her, because it was her, because what she knew, he didn't. Yeah, obviously his command was at stake and all that stuff, so he didn't want to lose that. And... I mean, that said, I don't think that was done out of any sense of maliciousness. I think that was more a case of, and, and I still think there's an element of he's doing what he, he's determined to win this war. He wants to be the one to win this war and he's not letting anything stop him. Yeah, and that's where the implication that he's the one that sabotages that final jump uh, comes in. That is because, implied. Yeah, it's, it seems pretty clear to me. You know, He does something on his um, his chair and and then the next thing it knows it fails. And it's it comes at a point where he's about to lose everything. You know, the, the ship's about to be benched. He's mm-hmm. about to lose his command because Conwell, as soon as she recovers, is going to have that conversation with him. My problem with that theory is it doesn't entirely gel with what he want. He supposedly wants, which is to win the war. So why at that point would he then go, oh yeah, I'm just going to run away. It's like, but that doesn't make sense unless there's another agenda for him there. Yeah. I mean, has he already transmitted the the new sort of algorithm so that they can find the ships, or is this some disappearing with the, with the the war winning algorithm on board? Yeah, I would, I didn't I've, I haven't really watched it actually, but I didn't find think that was particularly clear. I got the impression it wasn't ready to be transmitted yet, but again, I'm not sure. They say something about you'll have it in like seventeen hours or seven hours. Yeah, when we finish compiling the data and yeah. yeah. And then an unspecified time later, they jump. So you don't know yeah. whether they've transmitted it by then or the plan yeah. was, oh, no, we'll just hand it over at the starport when we get there now, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's clear that there's something untoward about that because there is that conversation where he he manipulates Stamets into deciding to do that one last jump, which is clearly gives him that chance to, to do something. Um, Assuming he does manipulate Stamets there. Yeah, I mean it can be read two ways certainly, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know. Whenever I see him talk to someone, I'm assuming that he's manipulating them in some way. I don't know why. Just something about. See, because when I first viewed it, I didn't really see it as a manipulation. And then he's talking about, um, you know, I told them to give you the medal because it was you that they did it. So if you're reading it like that, it's like it's not particularly that he's going there for the glory or he's going for that. And then if you read it as a manipulation, then it's kind of the opposite, you know. Yeah. It could be either way. And I think at this point, this is one of the things that I guess, you know, in a next in six weeks or something, we'll start finding more out about that. But at the moment, I have no idea what the f*** he's up to. <laughs> but that's what makes it such an interesting cliffhanger, because you do have these little mm-hmm. seeds of, of things that could be connected to it, and they might not mm-hmm. be. And there might be something else entirely going on. Or maybe it is just a genuine accident, and there's, you know, just so happens that the final jump is the one that screws up, and they end up in... Well, it could be that he was... It could be he was trying to change the course, but they've ended up somewhere where he didn't intend. Yeah. That could also be it, yeah. 
Uh, there's also those theories that he's from the Mirror Universe and all this nonsense. I, 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 I was completely kind of anti that, but I must admit, there's a little voice in the back of my head now that says, well, maybe that's not as crazy as I thought it was initially. I mean, there's always a, we know how he was the only survivor from his ship. Mm-hmm. What if the destruction of his ship swapped his places with his counterpart? Could be. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's likely. And certainly most of the way through the show, I thought it was complete nonsense. But actually, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. It's the I don't history think it's like... has with some characters, though. That's the thing. Like, mm-hmm. You know, the, the history is with Cornwell. It's, you know, it's clear. Maybe he had history, not... but he could have had history with those characters in his own universe. Yeah. I, 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 I think it's unlikely. I'm just not ruling it out at this stage. Whereas at one point I would have ruled it out. Now I'm kind of like, well, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's all up in the air, I think. Um, I'm interested to see how it plans out. I think... Um, it was a good cliffhanger. Uh, it was very much a... It, it almost felt like a kind of Voyager end-of-season type cliffhanger. Although yeah, I guess. I get the impression that they know what's coming next, whereas in Voyager they never did. They just wrote a cliffhanger <clears throat> and then gave it to someone else to write their way out of it. Well, to be fair, most of the shows did the same, so... Yeah. I mean, TNG didn't know how Best of Both Worlds Part 2 was going to pan out. No, but I think they had an idea on some of the other ones. Yeah. If you, if you listen to um, the interviews and stuff, it was kind of like, okay, now how do we get out of this? Yeah, yeah. but this was definitely built as a cohesive 15-episode thing. So, mm-hmm. um, And I kind of like that, because I like the idea that once this is done and dusted, we'll get another story. And does anybody else think uh, it might end with Burnham leading another mutiny that ends up with her being the captain? could be going that way because it is it is setting Lorca up as someone that might have to be stopped at some point. Yeah, I kind of hope that's not the case because I actually want Lorca to continue and grow and not go away but I could yeah. see it going that way. Well, the- I could see her causing a mutiny. I don't know if she would end up as the captain though. Yeah, I can yeah, see her I, sort I, of manipulating I, and moving people into position in order for a mutiny to happen maybe because she sees this has got to stop but I don't is, know I think, if she'll end up in the chair. I think the ultimate plan for her is is for her to eventually be the captain. It's just when that'll happen, whether it's at some point during the series or at some point when the series ends, we end up with her as a captain. And I think that's ultimately her journey. But yeah, I, I think I think we will end up with her as a captain. I would I, I think I would prefer for it almost to happen as a redemptive art where Starfleet go. Do you know what you've right? You've served your wrongs. Your your thing. Mm-hmm. And thanks to you, whatever has happened has been stopped well done, we reward you with what you should have had. I I think I would prefer for it to happen like that than for her to only end up as a captain of a Starfleet vessel through another mutiny. (laughs) Even even if it takes... I I suppose if it takes the mutiny to then get a redemption then maybe okay, but... I I, I tend to agree that wouldn't be my preferred outcome as well, but I could see them going that way. Yeah, I would much prefer her to earn her commission back. Mm-hmm. You know, through through some kind of act that means that she gets pardoned. I mean, maybe saving the admiral will be enough to get the the mutiny scrubbed off the books. I mean, I I I kind of hope she's got a commission back by the end of this season. Yeah, but... maybe she'll be a lieutenant or something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Um, 
Because I actually yeah. like the lower decks feel of the show, and I would like them to continue that. Yeah. And th- yeah, there's all sorts of little um, little bits of, I like that you don't really see in other Star Trek shows. You know, the the major one I think of is the the nightclub style party sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed that for so many reasons. I mean, the idea that Michael is the nerd at a party. You know, how mm. many of us have been this kind of been at a party and nothing wanted nothing more than the night to end. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no, I'm very <laughs> cool and all into my stuff. dance music here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, you know, the idea is, and, and it's even funnier that the night will never end because it's mm-hmm. on a time loop. You know, yeah. But, but uh, I just it, find it fun. It's a nightclub. I mean, yeah. you never get to see a nightclub in Star Trek. Normally, they're sitting there at someone's piano recital yeah. or. Some in, in, Shakespeare in, in rant, defense, you know? In defense of Star Trek, and actually I saw a lot of people win... I did see people complaining about this was not a very Star Trek party. And It's like, did anybody actually watch any of Dax's parties on DS9? I'm sorry, <laughs> those were like serious parties. Yeah. You know, I mean, she had fire breathers for fucking... <laughs> sake, you yeah. know? <laughs> And then but yeah, uh, and drink yeah. and orgies and whatever. Um, but yeah, Dax, had pretty, Dax was you know pretty hedonistic on DS Nine with her parties, so I'm well, not really the only one. People objected to this yeah. one, but she had a few. Yeah, but if you look at like Next Generation, all of their entertainment seemed to be quite highbrow, didn't it? You know, it yeah, very much, very much. Do you want to come to Data's violin recital? And it's like, no, nah, yeah, no. Nah, what was it? Uh, Dax at the wharf. That must have been a pretty dull shit. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I mean, TNG's still my favourite show, but yeah, I, I, I think that's a fair, very valid criticism. Yeah. It was sometimes trying to be a lot smarter than it needed to yeah. be. It's all people just sitting there, you know, um, like you said, uh, performing Shakespeare or mm-hmm. playing the violin or, or all, you know, a lot of stuff that, all right, people are into it, but if you've got a diverse community of people, not everyone's into it, you know, and 10 forwards always getting filled up with people just doing highbrow stuff. But I, I quite like the fact that you've got the lower-ranked people just having a party, getting drunk, mm-hmm. blowing off some steam. That was... It was refreshing. And, yeah. And the closest you see to it is in the 2009 movie, um, where Kirk goes to that dingy bar in Iowa. <laughs> uh, well, it's more it's more like the cadets and everything and the recruits at that point, isn't it? Yeah. Rather than the actual officers or, you know... In, I, I, I think it's great that we're trying to get that. Sorry, I think it's great that we're seeing that different angle. You know, Lazy the Lower Decks is one of those sort of fun episodes where you you get to, you know, you get to see that different view. And Discovery's definitely been showing us that. With you know, like you said earlier on, you're not focusing on the bridge crew all the time, sitting around doing you know heads of staff meetings about the situation that's going on. You're kind of seeing people just getting on with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you haven't actually sing- seen a single briefing room sequence. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to the meeting room and chat about this. It's like, do we have to? <laughs> I've come up with some overhead projector slides for everyone to admire. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't really have any problems with the briefing room scenes. They were just a bit overdone. Yeah. Um, yeah, when they did things like that in the original series, one, they weren't, they were much more energetic scenes. There was more dissent in them. Um, there was a wee bit more fire in those sort of scenes. But they didn't do them all the time. Yeah. Whereas TNG, 
they were almost a staple of, uh, and again, it's criticism of TNG, and I love TNG, but they were almost a staple of TNG. Yeah. In fact, almost a cliche. <laughs> Same as Technobabble, that was almost yeah. a cli- that was a cliche on TNG, and even more so on Voyager. Um, and I don't mind Technobabble, but it, they just tended to overdo things like that sometimes. Yeah, there's a giant Borg cube sitting outside the ship, but we're just going to have a meeting. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's all adjourn <laughs> to the room. It make a lot of sense, to be fair, and that's a great episode, <laughs> but yeah, let's go and talk about it in my office. Um, <laughs> would anybody like some tea? Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. Let's just leave. No, 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 big shit, let's go. It's like, no, 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 cup of tea in a chat. Uh, yeah. Um, don't, don't worry, guys. There'll be lunch. We're putting lunch yeah. on for this meeting. Yeah. It's fine. Who's going to take <laughs> the minutes? The uh, who proposes in seconds? And uh, <laughs> and let's let's move. <laughs> I yeah, mean, it's really got that. Yeah. No, it's it's they do it more organically, like you would expect. But they have little huddles where they stand next to someone's console and discuss it. They don't go, "Oh, that's very great. Bring it to the next meeting and let's sit around the table and talk about it." They sort of, you know, you get a lot of the walk and talk kind of thing and you get a lot of people just sort of meeting in groups and discussing it naturally I think rather than sort of the sit down formal let's all batter ideas about and have one person sitting in the corner going but wait I don't quite understand that babble some more and uh, you know it, it works a lot better you also have Lorca's command style where he, he'll either tell someone what to do and <clears throat> expect them to do it or he just won't care what anyone else is up to. If it's you know if it's not affecting him in any way, he doesn't really bother. Like the again the time loop episode where they encounter that space whale, and mm-hmm. Michael's like, I think we should bring it aboard because it's on the endangered species list. And he's like, Yeah, whatever, do whatever you want. I don't care. And and then in one of the repeated loops, you've got Ash who says, You know, I, I'm going to go down as a security detail. And he's like, I still don't care. Just whatever, whatever you need to do, I don't care. And it's kind of refreshing in that way because he has bigger fish to fry than all this kind of minutiae that you'd see other people get involved in. Other captains would would be a bit more micromanage whereas Lorca definitely isn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't disparage Picard's command style or anyone else's. It's just different. And it's just something we haven't seen an awful lot of. Yep, I agree. I suppose Cisco was a bit similar in a way. He would just let people get on with whatever they were doing, trusted that they knew what their jobs were, and then and he would only yell at them if they did something wrong, which he did quite frequently. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of Cisco's command style, it has to be said. <laughs> it has its moments. It has its moments. He was not a good loser. He does shout at people a lot, though. That would probably be my command style, to be fair. But, you know... <laughs> Just I probably have patience for Cisco. But yeah, anyway, bah, digressing. Yeah. Back to Discovery, yes. Um... So yeah, the storytelling, even though it is actually quite similar to previous Star Trek series and just television in general, it's kind of it's packaged in a slightly different way, which makes it feel new and exciting. And ultimately, that's all you can do. I mean, after you've have seven hundred plus hours of Star Trek, it's it's hard to do anything new. But the, and they needed to do something new. Yeah, but the approach is different, which is which is better. You know, the better than saying we're going to innovate the franchise because you're not. I mean, you really aren't, but you can at least do things that will take make people take a bit notice. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately all the what they set out to do, I think, and they managed it. I think they did. I would agree. Yeah, and um, 
I mentioned Ash there, but uh, it's a character we haven't talked about yet. The guy that is absolutely has to be a Klingon spy of some sort. Oh, like. yeah, <laughs> I think so. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's pretty, pretty glaringly obvious. But maybe it's just too obvious. I don't know. Maybe this is a big fake out. I don't think the all this stuff about this actor doesn't really exist, and you know. Th- this Klingon guy and um, apparently the actor playing Ash was supposed to play Volk at some point or something. It was Call. Oh, right, okay. But yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's highly likely, but I wouldn't be surprised if they turned around and it was a big fake out either. It seems like he's triggered at least. You know, he has some kind of programming that's been built into him that he can that can be triggered. Is it programming or is it trauma? Yeah. Part of me would actually. Part of me is actually going to be slightly disappointed when and if he does turn out to be Voke, because they've got this whole soldier with PTSD trauma kind of thing going on. And if it turns out to be, oh well, actually he's just like a Manchurian candidate and he's actually really Voke. It's kind of a bit of a bummer for that storyline because they're doing some interesting stuff with that. Yeah, and it means that if he is Voke, then that's the end of that character, and he's a good character. So, but I. Is it going to be the end of that character? Because what if the way we resolve the war is evoke Tyler figures that when they figure out who they are, ends up siding with Burnham? Could be. Although, unless they decide to keep it a secret, I can't see how he would just be allowed to wander the halls of Discovery. Well, it depends on... Well, Burnham wanders the halls of Discovery and she was, you know... Yeah, but she's not a Ends his life in prison for mutiny. Yeah. Um, Wonders who, it depends on who's head of Discovery at that particular time as well. <laughs> well, I, you know, Locker's not above kind of bucking the regs to do what he wants that he thinks will serve him. If he, if they find out Tyler is Vok, but Tyler as Vok as Tyler genuinely wants to side with them and stay as Ash, I, I, I can't see Locker really having a problem with that. He might not react well initially, but I think in the long term he'd probably be down with it. Yeah. I think it's more likely that they're going to go with the fact that he's he's just someone who's suffering and he's refusing to admit the fact that he's suffering. And there might be some kind of, you know, psychological manipulation going on that, that makes him do something that betrays the ship. But, you know, it's like any Star Trek episode where someone takes their leave of their senses for a few minutes. It's just fine. They're blowed back well, to work. I- I, I think the whole Manchurian candidate thing is the most likely outcome there yeah. in the fact that Tyler doesn't... Tyler has been... Well, Vok has been programmed to think he is Tyler. It could be. And something will trigger him so he'll remember who he really is, but... Who knows? But he's a good character, and the thing is, like, when he's, he's first character. introduced, he seems mm. like that... I don't know, he's just in prison and you don't know an awful lot about him other than the fact that he's a warrior type character mm-hmm. and then um, once, you, once you dig into him a bit more, he's he's very I mean, for want of a better word, human you know, he's very his, ti- his timeline makes no sense Yeah The whole, I've been a prisoner here and she's been raping me for six months but three weeks ago she was running off she didn't have this ship and she was running off with a Vogue to the matriarchs, so you were on the sarcophagus ship with them for six months. 
Yeah, because she was stuck. No. Yeah, because she was stuck at the binary stars. On the sarcophagus ship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They couldn't it leave. It seems unlikely. Yeah. But, I don't know. I don't know, yeah. It could just be a, a continuity flub that they, they missed in the, in the second pass or whatever. Maybe. It has happened before. I think it's unlikely, but... Yeah. Who knows? I mean, they've put so much... If if this is all a fake out, they've put so much effort in to come up with fake IMDb pages. and. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think there's any accidents on this myself, but I don't know. Yeah. Who knows what they'll surprise us with. Yeah. And speaking of characters that take leave of their senses and then are allowed back to work, you have Saru, the Discovery First Officer, who is a good character. I think I love Doug Jones uh, in anything I see him in. I think he's uh, always really good. and um, Obviously, the, he's in a lot of pain playing this character because of the prosthetics involved and the way mm. that he can't walk properly and all this stuff. But interesting character. He is... Yeah, uh, I like that. I mean, certainly there was a lot of criticism of the whole my species uh, senses the coming of death, and I think people read more into that statement. But then that, co- you know, people were just nitpicking the trailers when they came out, and I think yeah. they read a lot more into that statement. There is, it's not that people sense the coming of death; they just have heightened senses and they know when there's danger around. And part yeah. of that's probably psychological. I mean, I don't think there's any kind of supernatural bent to it. I think it's just, you know, he's just got a highly, highly adapted sense of danger, as do we all, you know, yeah. and it's just like, you know, sometimes if you're walking out in the dark by yourself at night and, you, you know, your the hairs on the back of your neck might go up or your own imagination plays tricks on you because, you know, we have this whole fight or flight reaction from when we used to be apes living yeah. in trees kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a highly evolved highly overdeveloped sense of danger they have and it's kind of cool it is yeah. I'm not sure if I was a fan of his sort of thing in the in the second last episode I didn't quite understand that it wasn't so much mind control as just being shown oh you could just hide here for a bit and he seemed well, to accept that it was a bit I, I found it a bit confusing. I was trying to work out what his motivations were and if he was just nuts by that point. I think, uh, I mean, my, my, I don't think that's the strongest episode they've done so far, certainly. I mean, my, my take on that is that was generally a case of here's someone who has lived with fear all his life. And, you know, we have people that, you know, go through their lives anxious about, with heightened anxieties who, I guess can relate to that, but someone who's gone through their entire life scared of everything, who all of a sudden has that fear taken away, that must be a fairly transformative experience mm. um, to not have that fear anymore. So whether it's just a case of, I don't know, whether it was the effect of, I can't remember what the name of the aliens were, on him. The Parvins. Or, Parvins, or whether it was the fact that he no longer had fear and he was able to give in to his you know hidden impulses or other things you know I don't know what I'm trying to say but maybe that was deeper issues of his that were that came mm. out because he no longer had that fear 
And I suppose him being in war as well would be sort of his idea of hell, really, under that constant threat of a surprise attack. So, yeah, okay, I, I kind of get where you're coming but from. I, I, I agree with you. I don't think it was the strongest of the nine episodes at all. And, I don't know, it could have been done better. That's the one I flew all the way to London to watch. Oh, yeah, right enough. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun event. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the the thing is, I mean, I thought that episode was an awful lot like, um, I forget the I forget the title, so you know people can jump down my throat if they want. But the the one where Spock got infected with spores, and he, you know he was crazy for a little while. This side of paradise. That's the one. Yeah, that was the one I wanted to say, but I couldn't remember if that was the one where I Kirk think, thought he was a native on this planet. No, I think that's that would be the paradise syndrome. No, I think that's a. Fair analogy, actually. Yeah, and it's the same sort of thing, you know. That a, a couple of hours in sick bay, and the writers ready to go back mm-hmm. to work, you know. And uh, there's no workman's comp in Starfleet. Apparently, they just get on with it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I see what you're saying because like because he did reflect on it, and he did point out that the the lack of fear was was intoxicating to him. And I suppose that was maybe what the the effect was, you know, the the idea he was in this. Environment that was in perfect harmony, where nothing was, nothing was hunting anything else, and everything was just, you know, the the planet literally sings because it's I think, in harmony. And, and I think that's a fair point because I think much as Spock wanted to, Spock, kind of unburdened by his logic, suddenly decided he wanted everybody to enjoy this as well. And I think part of that is no long. Oh God, what's his name? Saru. Saru. <laughs> It's been a long week. Um, Saru, unburdened by fear, suddenly wants to share what he's found with everybody and thinks that bringing them all into the fold, you know, this is what's right for everybody and right for the galaxy and save, will save everybody by sharing what he's learned with them and bringing them into this fold. Much like kind of Spock in this side of paradise. So I think that's a good example. Yeah. And I quite like the uh, errand of mercy uh, nod at the end as well. Oh, yeah. Where, where um, you know... I'm g- we're going to bring the Klingons here because you just need to talk it out and be harmonious because we don't yeah. understand. Like we don't understand what you're actually fighting about, and you just shouldn't be fighting. And that was, um, I mean, it wasn't exactly the same, but it was very similar. It was the idea yeah. no, of forcing them, you know, into that situation. Although it's weird that the Pavin thing wasn't was just ignored in the following episode, like completely mm-hmm. by everybody. They were just this thing that was in danger. That was it. Whereas I thought they might factor into the plot a bit more heavily. Yeah. But I guess it was just a standalone thing to make the cliffhanger thing happen. You know, just to move the pieces into that particular position. Yeah, I guess so. Unless yeah, it's going it to come, come well important well. later. It might do. I think, um, I think that episode holds up better as well in conjunction with the next one. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, the the fact that they take place seconds apart is, you know, uh, links them completely. And um, and it is the idea that you do see the thing that they have to defend. I mean, that has mm-hmm. merit to it as well. The fact that it's not just some faceless colony or whatever that we don't really care about. It's you know, it's something tangible that we've seen and we understand what will be lost. You know, it's very Starfleet and very 
very Trek ethos as well. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, Locke is at his most Starfleet in this episode. Yeah, he is. Yeah, where he says, well, no, we're going to come back and defend the Pavins. I don't care what Starfleet... Interestingly, though, is that to serve his agenda or to serve the greater agenda is really not clear. Or is he just spoiling for a fight? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or is the real Loka starting to... The non-traumatised Loka starting to reassert himself? Yeah. Is that more like Loka before he lost his crew? That's what makes him interesting. You just don't know. You, just don't, you don't know. know. Where he's going. Yeah. yeah. Kind of back to Saru's spidey sense, in effect. Um, I think early on in the show it wasn't that well established because it seemed to hint that part of it was, you know, it had this innate sense of danger, mm-hmm. which is fine. But also part of it was that it was to do with the way he sees people. So he saw Michael as dangerous until the point that he didn't. So mm-hmm. there was a point where she was setting off his, uh, his what's it mm-hmm. called? The the gland. Or threat ganglia. The threat ganglia, that was it. Uh, so she was setting that off because he was afraid of her. He was actively afraid of her because of what she, the way she but acted. But then and, you know. that, that makes sense because if you think that it's not some super sense, yeah. some supernatural ability, it is just a highly developed sense of danger yeah. It's just like us going in, walking into a dark alleyway in the middle of the night, thinking, yeah. ooh, this is a bit creepy. But to counter that, he has every reason to think that the tardigrade was dangerous. And that didn't set it off. Mm-hmm. So that was, that, that's what I mean by it was inconsistent. Yeah, that's a fair point. But was he ever in front of the, the target wraith, though? It's a giant creature that mauled people and killed the security chief. So, yeah, but it wasn't loose near him, though, was it? It was no, but it but it was there. I mean, I think he would be aware of it, and that it might be something to be terrified. Yeah, of. that's a fair. But point. we haven't we haven't really seen him react to anything that wasn't sort of next to him or about to affect him, though. So you know, it's, it's uh, any time he's been distant from something that's happening, it's not really affected him. I guess he said, "Oh, uh, you know." I wondered why I was feeling antsy. Now you're back on board, and that explains it. But you've never actually seen him react that way. He's just said it. Hmm. I guess it's a bit inconsistent. Yeah, it feel like they hadn't really decided what that ability was going to be at that point. Yeah, but it became the whole. It was Michael's proof that the tardigrade wasn't a dangerous creature mm-hmm. by nature. Obviously, it was if you, you know, decided to take down a force field and shoot it. That, that that makes it dangerous. I, I kind of have issues with the Tardigrade anyway, because, I mean, you know, obviously the Glen had restrained the Tardigrade and was using it for navigation, yeah. and then it broke loose and was breaking through bulkheads and that kind of thing. So how come that didn't happen on Discovery? Well, the implication was that Michael had treated it, <laughs> treated it with respect, or, you know, and not... But that, in the Glen, they had forced it to do the things that it did, but... But, she gave still, it treats. but they still forced it to do the things that it they was did. doing, so yeah. it didn't make a lot of sense to me that the Tardigrade... And, you know, the Tardigrade was put through worse because it ended up hibernating and nearly died, Yeah. whereas it clearly didn't get that bad on the Glen, so what made it go crazy and break through bulkheads on the Glen but not on Discovery? I... I I didn't think that was very well handled, to be honest. 
It, parts of it were. I liked the way that Michael connected to it, and the, that was the, good. The tardigrade was a metaphor for her struggle as well. That was good, and I liked that. Although I thought that it would have been more logical for her to be the one to take on the genetic burden for that reason, because she was the one that had the connection. True. I mean, ultimately, it was a great thing, a great arc for Stamos, Stamets, mm-hmm. Stamos, Stamets, and uh, Michael had enough to do on the show as it was, so. You know, it was good to give another character something to do. I think if they've known the way it's going, and if he's going to have sort of adverse effects from it, they didn't want to do that to their their main character. Yeah. You know, unless unless they are planning to to surprise us even more. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And there's still the chance that someone might have to take on the DNA and do that again. Yeah. What about that spore drive, though? You know, um, clearly that won't be around in the future. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's got to be a reason why the spore drive has not become the conventional mode of travel by uh <laughs> Well by by, then, yeah. by Kirk's time, you know, like yeah. in a few years. Because um, it seems that Starfleet are pretty pretty keen to roll it out across the fleet. Well that's never gonna happen, is it? <laughs> no, it can't. Yeah. Voyager be home in like ten minutes if there, there <laughs> is there is a bit of a theory going around that um and I don't really agree with it, but there's this idea that the whole show has taken place in an alternate Trek reality. Yeah, I've heard this. Um, and this is them now in... Pra- I, I, I I don't buy it. it. It's not impossible, certainly, but I don't buy it. They've gone to a lot of trouble to set up to say, look, this is Prime Universe, even if it looks a bit different. They've, they've produced books to reconcile the differences. It's like, I, I, I think... You know, unless they're going to an awful lot of effort to mislead us, I think that's unlikely. But it'd be such a cop out if that was the case. Wouldn't it, it would. The other, yeah. the other idea that does spring to mind is that maybe this is what the show's going to be from now on, and they're going to bounce around in realities, in time and space. Because yeah. um, there was talk about it being an ensemble. Uh, uh, you know, one of the ideas was it anthology being kind of yeah. no. What's the word? Like the Twilight Zone. Anthology. An anthology series. <laughs> so thanks for that. Uh, yeah, no mind's gone blank. But yeah, an anthology series, and maybe this would be an interesting way to do that. Although there's all sorts of this Brian Fuller hangover stuff that mm-hmm. uh, you know has probably changed. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure I read somewhere that the Tardigrade was going to be a member of the crew at one point. Yeah, that was certainly planned at one point. Yeah, but I think if... And other if stuff as well. One reason you might... See, one possible explanation for never seeing this kind of technology again is if it was lost with the discovery, never to be seen again. Yeah. But then the ship pops in and out of reality here, there, and everywhere, and... Flying Dutchman know. kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah. but you could drop into any, any Trek universe, any Trek time period, something like that, but you can use one ship... For your for your hero set, yeah, I don't know. It would be interesting. <laughs> it only really works if they've got a they've got a reason. Every time they jump somewhere mm-hmm. or they arrive somewhere, they've got to have something to do, which is either put something back on track or a competing faction with a similar well, you similar know, technology maybe, trying to unravel what they're doing. Maybe it's it just becomes leap. Legends of Tomorrow, doesn't it? Maybe yeah. it's Quantum Leap. Yeah, <laughs> trying to, try it. Hoping against hope that the next leap will be the leap home. <laughs> Could be. Um, 
I think I think they'll go in a much more traditional direction with season two. I think it, you're right. It has been said that season one is the Klingon War arc, and it won't uh, be any longer than season one. And I, I think, think that's good. Yeah, so I think season two will be warp drive. You know, exploring stuff. Maybe you know. I mean, they haven't said. Um, other than the fact that season two will reconcile the continuity, which I wish they hadn't said because there's no way they can live up to that. They're not going to. And, and I, I, I don't think they should make too much effort to do that. I would not have a slightest problem if in the last episode of the series they get new uniforms. And it's just the original series uniforms. Or some facsimile thereof. Yeah. Um... There's no now you know if if they'd made a series where everybody was wearing cage costumes and props and the ships all look like kids, I would watch it. Ninety nine percent of the viewing public would not. Yes. You know, so if they want to do something, it's like when TNG did you know relics and we saw saw Kirk's Enterprise or DS Nine did Trials and Tribulations as a one off. It's great. It's a nice bit of fan service. It's Mm -hmm. fun. You can't do it in a week in week out. You just can't. People won't watch, other than diehard fans. I'm a diehard fan. I would watch it. Other people won't. They would save you the budget, and that's about it. It wouldn't <laughs> really save you the audience. You know, it would yeah. just, you know, well, it would yeah. be the cardboard set would be a lot cheaper. However, yeah, yeah. At the end it was of the day, plywood set. <laughs> sorry, plywood. Of course, I, I, I bet there were no, there was no cardboard bits there at all, yeah. apart from the wobbly bits. You know, it's, <laughs> but yeah, well, it just. Sad. Oh no, that was wood. <laughs> <laughs> Even I'm joking. Say... I'm joking. I'm not mean that. Not entirely. Uh, anyway. Last thing we need is making him an enemy of this podcast. <laughs> uh, but I think the the whole idea of even if you look at how science fiction is now, so. Um, you know, you look at the J.J. Abrams movies, and they're a rough, they're a rough approximation of what technology might look like in three hundred mm-hmm. years. I mean, in reality, it's probably what technology will look like in thirty years, if that. You know, but and Discovery is the same. You know, we're we're probably ten years away from holographic communication like that. Yeah. You know, where we have most of the technology they're using already: tablets, touch screens, HD screens. You know, all that stuff. And I think it'd be yeah. really stupid if the Top ships in the fleet were now you went back to using buttons and wandering about floppy disks. I, I have no problem with that whatsoever because I think what matters is the stories, the type of stories they're telling, and the characters and the trappings. As much as I like the trappings, and I wouldn't call myself a canonista, but you know, I appreciate canon. I think it has to adapt, and and let the only way around that was to go forward into the future, which you know, realistically, I guess you could do, but. Yeah, I suppose you, know, you how, could set Discovery in the 27th century and it wouldn't actually... But then how much, much more ridiculous do you get with the technology, you know? Yeah. I I don't know. I think you could ease, you could do a show in far, far future, but would the people be... You know, I think the biggest problem the modern Trek shows had, there was nowhere to go for the Federation. It It was perfect. They had nowhere to grow, really. And I think that growth thing's important. And I think the nice thing about Discovery, they're showing they've got humanities here, we're going here. Whereas in kind of TNG and onwards, well, humanity's already here. And they didn't really go anywhere. No, I mean, and that's where why they... 
that's why they sort of changed it up a little bit with Voyager when they put it out of the way because you get rid of the all, all the backup and the trappings of you know the the Federation, mm-hmm. and then with Enterprise, you're sort of they went out before the Federation was formed and everything like that. So you, you take it back and with this. You know, you're still seeing the beginning steps. There's still everything is not perfect yet, so it's still uh, sort of worth worth seeing. There is a risk to it, which I don't think you would get with one set further in the future. And I completely agree with you. It's like what what vision do they have for it beyond that point? You would need to be seeing going even further into different quadrants, or how how far would the technology be? Because we've already seen from other Trek episodes where the technology in the future goes where they're basically time traveling mm. you know they're time traveling and they're you know amazing warp drives that can take you even 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 further you know so it, i think nothing would be a risk it would just seem I mean, it would just seem could, dull in the end of it the best thing you could do is just tear the federation apart i suppose that's the next logical no, step no mm. no 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 that would be I don't want to see that. And no, I, I don't want to see it either. But you will have even more fans. Com- I I'll be complaining if they do that. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. You'll have even more people complaining if they did something like that. But dramatically, uh, that's think, about all it can go universe-wise. You know, and that's the problem yeah. because if you're starting from a position of, well, your characters are perfect and your universe is perfect, that's not really that exciting a story to tell. You want characters to grow and learn and change. And as much as I, I mean, I, I love TNG. TNG is still my favourite Star Trek show, but the characters do not change in those seven years. I mean, they don't really evolve. I suppose Picard evolves somewhat. Data. But, I mean, and data. Okay, I'll give you that. Data yeah. does, but generally, they. Don't, I mean, Troy, in all good things, is pretty much the same Troy we met on day one. Riker yeah. is still pretty much the same Riker we met on day one. He's got a beard. Um, <laughs> they don't grow an awful lot. Picard's biggest change is he relaxes a bit and learns yeah. to hang out with his crew. But other than that, he doesn't change much from encounter and far encounter at Farpoint to all good things. But he's not supposed he's still, to as well because he is older. You know, he's quite far. But into you know, getting older doesn't mean you yeah. don't change. I mean, I'm older and I've changed probably more a lot in the last five years as well. I mean, you do change as you yeah. age. You know, getting older doesn't mean you stop growing. And I think that's the problem because we don't see that growth in the more modern show characters because they don't have anywhere to grow. And now maybe some of that is a failure of writing. I don't know. Yeah, it's also the it's also a symptom of episodic uh, syndicated television. You know, that's a fair criticism. You need it Mm -hmm. to be people can tune in any random episode at any time and get it. You know, and mm. here's Picard. This is what Picard's like. This is Riker. This is what he does, and and so on. And um, I guess all of them, with the exception of Deep Space Nine, had that issue because mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine worked to subvert that problem. But uh, and it was probably one of the, in terms of viewing figures, one of the least rated. Um, maybe for that reason, because it was harder to just jump, drop in on. But that's the uh, type of shows we watch now. Yes, and Enterprise started to become that. Um, just before it was cancelled. To its benefit. Yes. And it was, yeah, because it was, yeah, I don't want to see Archer floundering about forever. I want to see him mm-hmm. become a more seasoned commander. I don't want Trip to be a, a gormless, semi-racist idiot for the entire Which series. He <laughs> pretty much was, to be fair. But not towards the end. 
he was in the last episode. Well, that's, to be. that's a separate issue. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, could, these characters are growing, which is mm-hmm. good, and changing and, and evolving and, and and stuff. There's been a bit of fan service in these shows, in this show even. Uh, you've got you have Sarek as a character. Um, there's been Harry Mud as a character. Um, I loved what they did with Mud. Well, I did and I didn't because the thing is. The character Ryan or Rain Wilson's playing is nothing like Mud from the original series. The Mud we meet in the original series. This is ten years later. He's been through rehab at that point. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, I always thought that that Mud was kind of a a bit of a blundering character. You know, in his two appearances, he's he was kind of caught up in his own problem. Who so, knows what's happened to Mud in those ten years? Yeah, I'd still think they could have just called him anything and it would have been just the same. They could have, but I I like what they did with it, so, yeah. Mileage varies. I liked Rain Wilson. I liked uh, the character he was playing. Uh, quite liked how devious and scheming and brutal he was as well. He felt, he felt like mud to me in his mannerisms. Oh, there was some attempt to copy the performance, yeah. He was certainly copy, darker. But, yeah. yeah. I don't really have a problem with that. Maybe I should. <laughs> what but did you think of mud, Chris? Um, I I don't know much about the character from the original series, so I wasn't as big a fan of him in the first episode he appeared when he's sort of in the jail. I was like, oh, there's a bit of a weird character, and I don't know the backstory and stuff to him. Um, but I quite liked the time travel episode where they're sort of jumping back and forward. They just seemed to have quite a lot of fun with the character at that point. And they had fun with quite a few of the others as well, especially the the sort of Lorca death scenes, uh, where you just get the how many different ways he's killed them. Um, tomorrow death scenes. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I, I just kind of like that. I'm, I I thought he was all right, but I'm not sort of saddled with any of the stuff that's come before really. Uh, um, so, yeah, I thought he was fine. I just wish he wasn't mud, and I felt the same about Sarek. I don't think there was any real reason for them to use Sarek. Well, there was. Name recognition. That was it, yeah. But the idea that Michael could have just been raised by any Vulcan, really. Um, And I thought the episode where it points out that his greatest regret was the fact that he, um, you know, he chose Spock over her and she defied him anyway. He defied him anyway. I'm not Um, sure that's the implication you should take from that, though. Because if you think about the extra layer of backstory that adds to the Sarek and Spock, I mean, if you think of it, Sarek chose Spock over Burnham, yeah, and then Spock threw it in his face, yeah. You know that adds another layer of depth to that relationship that I quite like. It does, but, but if you bear in mind that people watching the show have only ever seen this show and maybe the Abrams movies, fair enough. But, but then but then you get into the territory of actually they're doing things there for the fans. Yeah. With that. But, so But there's that relationship he has with Spock is one sided because you never see how Spock reacts to that relationship. And you never see Spock's relationship with Michael either because he's just not there. So it kind of fails on that score, I think. And that's where using not using Sarek might have been a a better use of that because then they would have been able to see, I, I don't think it fails on that front, because if you've never watched any Star Trek before, 
it doesn't make any difference to you one way or the other. And that works on the relationship between those two characters. But if you are familiar with Spock and Sarek's relationship, it adds another level layer to that. But, you know, different strokes. I think I think that one that one fact adds a layer, but the rest of it doesn't really. And for that one little bit of fan service, that one little bit of depth, is it worth that character being the one named there? Could they not have just gone for any other Vulcan and still had that character in there somewhere? And you don't but, have any recognition. Yeah, yeah. I I do think it is a bit of well, we'll go for one we know rather than inventing a new yeah. one. I I. Would have quite liked it if it had actually been Saval instead of Sarek. Yeah. And that would have made sense. It would have, yeah. Saval raising a human, yeah. Mm-hmm. Why not? Um, it would kind of complete his arc towards accepting humans. And, I mean, if his arc needed to be completed, I suppose it And you could but... still have had Sarek in there. You could have, yeah. Uh, and James Frain is very good, though. He is a, mm-hmm. He's a great Sarek, I think. Um, much better than the guy they got in the 2009 movie. He was not very good. As Sarek, okay, I'm sure he's a fine actor. But I think Frayne's better. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, if could they not have got Zach Quinto to turn up for a scene or two? Just to, you know, give us that extra bit. Yeah, who knows. That would be fun, but... Yeah, he's I don't on think the, see it. He'll be on the Enterprise with Pike at this point in the timeline, mm-hmm. I think, won't he? Yeah. It um, would be nice. I don't think we'll ever see that, but it would be nice. No. But, yeah, so the, I think this show is a bit bizarre in the way it handles fan service. Some of it's really good. I quite like Saru's give me a list of all the competent Starfleet captains. Mm-hmm. And three of them are people we've heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan Archer might not be the most popular <laughs> choice in that, on that list. But, you know, I suppose... Actually, four of them are people we've heard of. Yeah, Giorgio... Pike, in fact, all of April, them are people we've heard Archer. of. April, Archer, yes. Pike, Georgiou, and Decker. Yeah. Oh, that's right, yeah, Decker, Doomsday Machine Decker. Decker was in there, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Matt Decker, yeah. Yeah. Which is funny when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, at some point he was competent. Uh, I noticed they didn't put Captain Garth on there. Oops, should I have said that? <laughs> I am not surprised by that, <laughs> somehow. I thought episode was a bit strange, because the, the fact that Saru was very kind of unsure of himself as a commander, that's a good that's a good arc, and it's good for mm-hmm. him to, to build on. But it, it seems very anti-Lorca to have someone in that position that doesn't know what they're doing. Do you not feel it's the case of him having someone there that he can walk over, though? He's not got a first officer that's going to pull him up constantly. Uh, or even if he does pull him up, he's just going to trample over him anyway. Whereas if he had had someone like Michael there, he would have mutinied already. <laughs> there may be an element of truth to that. Yeah, could be. Although I get the impression that Lorca's not afraid of anyone. I don't think it's so much a case of Saru not being competent. I think it's more a case of when he's the first officer, he feels quite, he feels relatively safe in that position. But when it, when the ball stops with him, that's a completely different setup. He's not used to being the one that the buck stops with. Yeah, I suppose. But I don't know. I, I kind of I had issues with the fact that that Lorca would let someone so incapable of being in command like that. In, but maybe Lorca doesn't see him that way. Maybe it's not a dynamic they play with at all. 
Mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe it's right and he's there because Locker can walk over. Maybe, yeah. Um, perhaps. So, kind of just to, to wrap up, what are your kind of favourite and maybe least favourite moments on the show? Ooh. That's a good question. We haven't got that much content to mine for our moments, at least, at this point. <laughs> I really like the party. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Nerd at a party. That's it great. was really well done. I really loved the moment when Stamets and Kolba kissed in engineering. It was actually really nicely done. And I really like pretty much any scene between Burnham and Tilly, because they just seem to bounce off each other. Yeah. Ah, and Cornwell and Laurel in that cell. That oh, ride. that was good, yeah. But, I mean, those two really, and I really hope we see them have more scenes together mm-hmm. in the future, because I thought they really bounced off each other well. Yeah. Chris, your favourite and perhaps least favourite moments? Or, Nick, do you have any least favourite moments? Uh, um, yeah, I'll get back to you on that. Cool. <laughs> I'm struggling to think. Uh, the nerd at party thing, I really, really liked. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else that I thought was quite cool. I'm trying to think of some of the some of the combat scenes have actually been quite good. There, the hand to hand combat stuff has been really well shot in this, uh, which I've liked. Kirk's so gone for good, scenes. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's been some proper, you know, fight scenes done and it's it's looked quite neat. A few of them have been alright. I know it's not the most uh, trek of things, but uh, yeah, definitely some of that. The scenes with Tilly have been really fun. Um, I'm trying to think of really specific stuff and uh, my brain is fried at this time. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to have to go with for now. For me, my, my favourite stuff, uh, yeah, I do like a lot of the kind of little insular character moments. I like the Ash-Michael relationship. Uh, I like Sarek and Michael's relationship as well. Pretty much Michael's relationship with everybody is really good. Stamets I've always been a fan of since he was first introduced. Um, I do like the way the show handles action, although I kind of miss the beam phasers. It seems they died as soon as the Abrams movies came out. Star Wars blasters, essentially, is what we're getting now. Um, I miss them. but, But I think the space battles are really dynamic and exciting. And there hasn't been that many of them either, which is nice. You know, as to contrast with, say, Voyager or Enterprise, where someone would take a shot at them in every other episode, or every episode in some cases. Uh, but like, especially the the battle in the ninth episode, the where they're jumping around the Klingon ship, and and you've that got them sneaking good. around. That was cool. Uh, it's just, you know, they found ways around it that, that make them look a bit better. Although they're still falling into the shields at thirty percent trap. And the, and I don't the, like that, I must admit. Yeah. And the consoles still blow up in their faces. That still happens. I guess some tropes are difficult to get away from. <laughs> I know, yeah. It should be easy, but it's not. But uh, So I liked that, but I didn't like those aspects. Uh, I would One say that. Sorry, only go. Yeah, my least favourite moments always involved the Klingons because it was endless scenes of people talking slowly in Klingon with reams of subtitles to be read and. It just didn't really work for me. I, I like the fact that they were trying to be authentic, but Klingon was always a very quickly spoken language, and they're just speaking it very slowly. And Well, I guess when they're learning it phonetically, they're not much choice. Yeah, but 
the thing is, those scenes, it's hard to fig- it's hard to remember what they're about once they're over because there's just been so much reading and, and the costumes and makeup is so restrictive that they aren't that interesting to look at either in some cases. So I wish they'd done a kind of Hunt for Red October style mm-hmm. conceit where they're speaking Klingon but you're hearing English. Mm-hmm. Like they did in the last one with the Universal Translator. One thing, one other thing I really liked was the back of the fight, the last fight we got between Burnham and Cole. That was really well done, especially yeah. her beam out, her jumping beam out at the end. That was really mm. nicely done. Yeah. Two other things in that episode that I wasn't so keen on, though. One, those beacons. Oh, the light. These beacons aboard the ship that have big, bright, flashy lights with United Federation <laughs> Planet Starfleet Command and say, connecting to USS Discovery. Really? <laughs> really? These are not very discreet guys. You didn't think this one out. Um, all he needs one of them to on do. the bridge. <laughs> yeah, and every, every once in a while it goes, staying hidden. <laughs> staying hidden. <laughs> it's like, you just got, I've just got this image of the Klingon groundskeeper Willie going in and sweeping up and going, hey, what the f***? This thing. No. Um, and the other thing, it's like, I liked how they dealt with Tyler's trauma, but it's a little, and I didn't really pick it up this way, but I've seen other people talking about it. And then the kind of sex scene with him and Laurel that he kind of flashes backwards to, back yeah, I to. I didn't need to see that. I didn't think we needed to see it, but it's also, it's not, it's difficult to tell, is it abuse or is it not? It was almost played as if it was actually sensual, but it was also being portrayed as abuse. And I thought that was a little bit, in well, hindsight, been, a little It was being up. intercut with him getting cut. Or yeah, him, it wasn't. Know. My suspicion in, my suspicion in the long term is that's going to probably play out to be actually that was Cole and Laurel in the throes of whatever. And it is a pleasant memory, but it's all messed up in his head. But yeah. it's a bit ambiguous in the way they portrayed it, and it it doesn't quite give the right impression, if that's the case. No, yeah, it was a bit strange, but it is clearly the start of that mm. story rather than giving you all the answers right away, so it's yeah. forgivable in that sense. Yeah, um, that moment was a bit weird. Uh, there was there was other little bit of weird, but I think some of the dialogue could on occasion be very hokey. You know, you had characters that would explain how they feel to each other and in some cases, it wasn't all the time, but sometimes it would just be a little bit on the nose. And, um, what do we think of Star Trek's first F-bomb, followed immediately by its second F-bomb? Oh, that's so f***ing cool. <laughs> you realise it's going to be like bleeped out with like a photon torpedo. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't Only know, I one uh, photon torpedo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't mind it. I think um, it's fine. If you want to swear, go for it. It's... People do swear, you know. And I was absolutely fine with it. Yeah, the the sort of neutered received pronunciation type language, and particularly in the TNG era, got a bit mm. tiresome, you know, and because it starts to feel like people don't talk like this. And I know it's the future, but I start to feel like these conversations have been written rather than they're actually being had, yeah, which of course they are. But you know, dialogue is can sound better than that. Um, I, I'm not sure I like the context of it. I suppose if it was going to come from anyone randomly, it'd be Tilly. It worked for me. It probably doesn't work for everybody, but it worked for me. Yeah. Uh, Chris, did you have an opinion on the, the F-bomb? Did it make your monocle fall out of your eye and land in your martini glass? Well, they can fuck. 
swear whenever they like. <laughs> they can get on with it. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just taking the liberty. I'm normally on radio and can't, so I'm gonna I'm gonna swear as much as I like. <laughs> yeah. It just creates been... havoc for me editing, but okay. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Are you not wanting to throw one in, Craig? I mean, you're going through all the effort of editing this, so you might as well f- and swear with the rest of us. Ah, oh, f- Hey, there we go. So this will be up in about. Thank you, for giving us that opportunity. So that will be up in about four months by the time I finish (laughs) editing out all this. And that's okay. It will be just in time for season two premiering, and we're talking about the first half of season one. (laughs) Yeah. um, So we've discussed crackpot theories. We've kind of got our favourite moments in there. Uh, I think we should just wrap this up. If that's agreeable. So. I need to get going anyway. Yes. Well, um, you'll be able to hop in your spore drive and go somewhere. But black alert. Black alert. Yeah. yeah. So, um, just kind of a wrap-up statement. What What are your final thoughts on the series? What would you like to see happen next? And what are your kind of expectations? Um, Chris, you can go first if you have these. Uh, oh, what do I want to happen next? I don't know. I, um, I'm, I'm intrigued. I want to find out more about Lorca's past. Um, it's left me on such a note of like, oh, what? Are you going to leave me there? I want to find out more. So, um, yeah, I hope that eventually we see Burnham getting a, a, a sort of rede- redemptive arc, getting, getting her commission back. I think would be really nice. That's what I want to see. Nick, what would you like to see and what do you hope happens next? And Yeah, um, I, I, I'm with Chris. Firstly, I want to see Burnham wear the badge again. I want to see her get a commission back and I would like to see that by the end of the season. But if it takes longer than that, I'm okay. Um, I think we'll ultimately see her as a captain. I just don't know when. Um, my prediction for the end of the season, I think Ash is probably going to be Cole and I think his experience aboard Discovery and his feelings for Burnham are probably going to make him the solution to ending the war and making peace. And he may or may not defect and live as Tyler. Who knows? Yeah. Um, My hopes are that it just continues to be entertaining and enjoyable and surprises me now and again. Um, I'd like to... I wouldn't like Tyler to turn out to be Voke or whoever else. I would rather he's just... He's just a messed up officer who's been through some really bad stuff. Some really bad sh** that I can edit out there. Um, that that would be fine for me. Michael achieving some kind of redemption in the form of becoming an officer once again would be nice. Um, I just want to see more of Lorca being Lorca. And I'm just looking forward to seeing where they've wound up. Because that intrigues me. Me too. Yeah. Because yeah. it's going to be... It could be anywhere. Or any when. Uh, yeah, I hope there's be. not more time travel, but it could be anywhere. And there is a hint that um, there is some kind of temporal messiness going on where where Stamets came out of the spore drive and said to Tilly, Captain, what are you doing here? So, um, Well, that could be alternate realities as well. Could be, yeah. Yeah, the, the uh, universe B, Tilly, is captain of the Discovery. That'd be cool. And she's like all confident and whatever. It'll be fun. 
Um, yeah, I like it. Star Trek for the new, for the new age. I'm all all on board. I'm looking forward to more. And we don't have to wait that long, so it's fine. We have a nice little break, nice little time to catch our breath. It's all good. And I dare say some of us will return for the end of season to discuss how this all wound up. Indeed. Whoever will be on that, who knows, but we'll find out in a few months. So I will key in some coordinates and beam you all back to where you came from. You know, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here, as I keep saying. <laughs> so if you will step on the transporter pad and I will beam you out. So thank you both for attending. It's been fun, as always. Thanks thank you. Cool. And energising. That was our discussion on the pre-mid-season episodes of Star Trek Discovery. If you like what you heard, then please subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or any major podcasting app. And join us for the next Neil Before Pod.